welcome Sia. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Yolanda Trevino and I'm an assistant vice president here at Indiana University in the Office of Diversity, Equity and Multicultural Affairs and we're so happy that you are here. Why don't you share with us where you currently are and what you do where you are. Okay. Yes, I'm Sia Versheldon and I'm here from Chicago. I've just been in Chicago for about nine months now. I'm Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs at Malcolm X College. That's one of seven city colleges of Chicago, which are community and technical colleges that are part of the city government of Chicago and have been for decades. Uh, and so Malcolm X College is on the west side of Chicago mm. and our students are about a little over 40% black, a little over 40% Hispanic. And so we are a, what used to call, be called a minority serving mm -hmm. institutions, mm -hmm. institution on the west side of Chicago. Okay, wonderful. So our population here um, in Bloomington is a little bit different, but at the end of the day, um, we're all serving students, mm -hmm. right? We're, mm -hmm. uh, whether we are minority serving or um, predominantly white, but mm -hmm. we're serving our mm -hmm. students. And I want to say thank you so much for writing the book that we'll be talking about today, Bandwidth Recovery. And as I was thinking about our conversation, really, and I'm really just going to ask a couple of questions and have you mm -hmm. share with me your thoughts as um, as you were writing and as you were trying to communicate to us, the reader. And I thought maybe the best way to organize my thoughts was to maybe to um, focus our thoughts into three different categories to talk about the book, the premise of your book, and the central points that you wanted to make within the book. Um, and then recommendations for those of us involved in the process and in learning spaces and in the process of learning. Mm -hmm. And then in the third uh, part of our conversation is to maybe kind of step back and to look at the challenges and then the solutions overall in higher education, whether it be um, in the community colleges and universities mm -hmm. and all places of learning in higher education. Mm -hmm. so that's how mm -hmm. I've kind of organized my, my, um, my thoughts. So maybe just starting with the title of the book. How did that come about? Okay, so the title, Bandwidth Recovery. Mm -hmm. So I learned the term bandwidth from reading a book called Scarcity, which is by uh, uh, Harvard, he was a Harvard professor at the time and a professor at, at Princeton. And scarcity is about how scarcity of, in this case, money or economic resources depletes the cognitive resources of our students. So they, their point in that book is that we usually in this country blame people for being poor and we say people make bad decisions because mm -hmm. the, people are poor because they make bad decisions. But what they're saying is it's actually the condition of being poor that does end up with people sometimes making bad decisions because it takes up a lot of your bandwidth of your attentional resources if you're poor because you're always worried about money and things that money can buy. So you're worried about your car breaking down or your kids getting sick or feeding your kids or yourself any food, let alone decent food, or having a place to live. So it takes up your, what they call bandwidth, and that's how I got the term bandwidth. Mm -hmm. So as I was reading that book, I thought money is one kind of scarcity. So if you don't have enough money, especially in this, in this culture in the United States, that is huge, and so you worry about it a lot. But, so I had been teaching for 25 years by that time in higher ed, and I thought of all the other kinds of scarcity that our students have. And I think it's a, you, it's a true statement that during the history of higher ed in the United States, that economically secure white students do better than other groups of students. And so I was thinking, could this explain that? Could scarcity explain that? So money is one kind of scarcity, but there's scarcity of respect, of belonging, of both psychological and physical safety for some students, of feeling like you are valued, that you're even visible in some places. And if, to the extent that those things take away bandwidth, that could explain why black and brown students, immigrant students, economically insecure students don't do as well 
as economically secure white students, and, and that's how I kind of set off on this journey that ended up in the book. Mm. Yeah, and so taking away this bandwidth, the, but then you included the second part as bandwidth recovery, yes. right? And so a little yes. bit about that. Yeah, so my, so one thing we could do is focus on the students, how students lose bandwidth, which is what I do in the book, but my focus of the work that I've done is how we as institutions of higher ed can create learning environments that help students recover that bandwidth. So I do speak with students and they so get this. So I, I just spoke with all, this semester I was invited by our nursing faculty. We have about 120 or so new nursing students each fall. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to come and talk with them during their orientation with the students. And so I explained about bandwidth and the things that take it away. And there you could just kind of see the, the, the weight coming off because these are systemic issues, racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, these things. These are systemic issues that affect lots of us. So what I think the students can hear is, oh, this isn't just me. I'm not a loser because I'm struggling. This is what happens to people who look like me, have share some identities with me. And then I talk with them about things that they can do to recognize when their bandwidth is low and try to recover. But I do not want to put the burden on them. My emphasis is how can we, how can you here create environments at least while they're in my classroom where they can recover those resources mm -hmm. lost to these other systemic negative things in their environment. You know, so, um because I read the book and I read it with very open heart and open mind and just even starting with the forward, Lynn Pascarella said that you invited us to do something and I'm going to quote what he um, was saying is that you invite us, those of us in, in higher education, to educate students who, to educate students who themselves can emerge and live in full potential of their lives, to find their passions, align the person that they are with the person they hope to be, and help every student find themselves in their forms. And that was just one line of a, of a larger mm -hmm. introduction. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I actually wrote it down because what we're doing is not just the learning of a subject matter, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're asking us to do a lot more than that. Yeah, and in fact, it, one of the, I think, the points that I make is that the subject matter, of course, students need to learn how to read, write, do math, do science, do all those things at a college level, at a university level. But that subject matter, we're not, it's not going to get through to them if they're using their attentional resources mm -hmm. on worrying about these other things. So this almost comes before that. And I, I wanted to go back to the conversation we were having about our schools earlier that I right now work at a school that has many black and brown students. And here, that most of the students are white. But I want, when we talk about, and we often think, so your school is less diverse. But the thing is, the diversity, most of the diversity within us is not about the color of our skin or the characteristics of our, facia our facial features. Most of the diversity within us is where we grew up mm. or our, could be our sexual orientation, our gender identity, our backgrounds, our, the way we think, our ability to learn in different ways. Our so life experiences. You, our life experience. Mm -hmm. That creates diversity, although if we look over at a group of students, we can say, oh, they're all white or, mm -hmm. or that or kind they're of thing all 18 think, years old. Or they're all, they're all young-ish, mm -hmm. or they're all older. Mm -hmm. So we, there's so much diversity, and many things about those kinds of diversity can, if you're a member of a group about whom there are negative stereotypes, you can have bandwidth loss when it's not the typical groups that you'd think about. So I think we have to no matter where, where our university or college is, we have to be paying attention to helping everyone um, feel like they belong and have all their bandwidth. Right, 
Right. You know, so you know, just thinking about our conversation and 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 knowing and having again saying ready having read the book, there's so many points that you made that I wrote down and I just I, you know highlighted or underscored it. And one of it was you're talking about the different parts of who we bring and who we are and what we bring to ourselves and you know one resource or part of us is if we're talking about being healthy and being ready um, was you know there was health it's not the absence of disease and so mm -hmm. I thought okay so then education what is education is it not the ab I mean what is education not the absence of ignorance I mean what if right. I were to That's then interesting what is education well, one of the things that uh, I wrote about and I always talk about in my talks is this uh, sense of funds of knowledge. And I don't know if anybody who's listening is in early childhood, they know about funds of knowledge because this idea comes from early childhood. But the fact that all of our students are coming to college with some knowledge, abilities, characteristics, values, things that they bring from their culture, their neighborhood, their community, their faith community, their family background, their own just personal interests. They come into our classrooms with lots of stuff. And this comes out of early childhood where some people, it's kind of easy to think that if a child comes from a poor family, so a low income, mm -hmm. a family that doesn't have enough, lots of money, that they also don't come with very much that they're coming with not many resources. But in reality, children, two, three, four-year-olds come with funds of knowledge mm -hmm. from things they've learned from their parents, their grandparents, their culture, their neighborhood, their community, etc. And the idea of funds of knowledge is to start with those, it's a strengths perspective, so start with what is the child bringing into the room and let's leverage that mm -hmm. to do the other kinds of learning. And so when I read that, it's same is true of our students. So if you are in this country a non-majority, by a variety of descriptions, low income or poor, first generation student, and I'm sure you have quite a few first generation mm -hmm. students here, and you get to college in this country, you know you're coming with a bunch of stuff because mm -hmm. you've survived to whatever age you come in with sometimes very few resources, financial resources, and you are at college. But many times we focus, I think, on what the students don't know, that they're not you know, quite reading at a college level or they're, they don't do math quite well enough, instead of focusing on what are you bringing. And that's what, so you go back to education, so to start out what are you bringing into the room? Your values, your background, what mm -hmm. have you learned? If you're a low-income student, you're probably highly likely to have been working since you were 13, 14 years old at a job for money that you contributed to your family or taking care of your own needs. Right. Well, holding down a job is, brings with it lots of skills and Lot abilities, skills. Right. teamwork, and you bring that into the room and if we started with the attitude, what are, you, what are you bringing? So I think in education, if we acknowledge that as part of education, so mm -hmm. don't look at our students as you're coming in here as this blank slate. Right, right. And we have to put that, yeah, we have to pour stuff into you. Rather, what are you bringing and how can we then enhance that to have you be educated in? It's just a different way. Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not educated. You have education, but now we want to enhance, we want to build on that. Mm -hmm. it, it, I was thinking, right, I mean, so what is education? It's not that you're, you know, coming with a blank slate, but that you are coming with many things that maybe we as the faculty member or the instructor, maybe that we haven't, maybe it's, I don't want to say our tabla rasa, but that we haven't had the time to prep or to prepare for seeing what it is that the, the students mm -hmm. are bringing mm -hmm. with them. And I think, mm -hmm. and that's where, what you're asking us to do with this book is to say, okay, so if we're in this circle or in this room or in this time and space of learning, then how do we create an intervention or a time that really is going to maximize 
that experience, you know, mm -hmm. with everyone. And, mm -hmm. and that, to me, I saw the onus as being on the institution and those of us who are part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's it's time. I think, and I'm. Many people have been saying this. I didn't just make this up. That we as faculty kind of just move over a little bit. And I went to college, like many of us did, who are in the professoriate right now. We went to college when you went to classes. You listened to lectures. You took your notes. Then you took a test where you told the professor what you know from what he or she said. And I happen to be very good at that. And so are lots of people who are professors, who are especially my age and, and a bit younger, because that's what school was and, and those of us who are good at it went on. Well, now we know that's not particularly the best way to help students learn. A better way is to engage those students. But in order to engage them, you have to first believe they have something to offer. Because if in your mind they are the blank slate, then why would you engage them? So we need to get out of the way a bit more and engage our students. And if they are not feeling like they belong, if they don't feel respected, if they're, part, if they're hungry, if they have housing insecurity, if they are worried about, you know, if they're hearing racist comments, if they're hearing homophobic comments, so, so part of their bandwidth is taken up by that, we're not, they're not gonna learn anyway. So engaging them and helping them to feel more like they belong in the classroom is going to end up with better learning in the end. And some, I know that some people have tried. There, there are these sometimes people call them non-cognitive non interventions. I, I'm not. I think it's it's all cognitive. It's all cognitive. But anyway, so right. it's for instance in what we call developmental math, I don't know what you call it here, but if, if students aren't quite ready for, col for college algebra, let's say, so you have this pre-college algebra class. Some people have done these non-cognitive interventions, like working on people's self-confidence, helping them feel like they belong, working on their hope, a full half of a semester, and then working on math the second half, and these students have better outcomes in math compared to students who spent the really? whole time on math because the thing is, it isn't about math fundamentally. It's about some of these other things that are getting in the way of learning math. So we, I think we can do some things that come out with equal or better learning outcomes mm -hmm. of the outcomes of the class. So this is content, discipline mm -hmm. content. Mm -hmm. But just covering material, if students don't have all their bandwidth in the room, you can cover it but it's not going to get through. I forget what the question was. No, no, I probably no, no, went no. way I, off. I mean, there's just so much in my mind because I, I was thinking, oh, I love your title in that of your administrative title that it's both academic and student affairs. So it's both sides of what's happening in and outside of the classroom to say, well, whatever's happening, what you're bringing into the classroom, I mean, you're hungry, it's 10 o'clock, you should have had breakfast mm -hmm. or you know, it's not quite lunch yet, you know, so, yeah. but be focused. And so knowing that, you know, again, when we talk about hunger, yes, maybe the immediate, but more long-term. Mm -hmm. And what does, th mm -hmm. what does that mean? So that I was mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, merging the, the, the holistic, the whole person, right? The having um, them to be ready to become their, their full potential. And I think that, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. Is there, are there individuals in, in the classroom that feel like, you know, I'm a better teacher when I have that nice bell curve where I've got the few who really got it, the majority who got it okay, and then, you know, another group of students who, well, they weren't going to get it, they didn't get it, and so retake it, and, and that means I'm, I'm doing a good job here. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not really into the bell curve thing of that there's certain students who aren't gonna get it. That, and there's this idea of weeding people out, which is, we've, I, I spent most of my career at Kansas State University, so a university quite mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. this one in Indiana. And some of my colleagues, because that's the way we've been trained. I'm not blaming anyone. That's the way we've been trained mm -hmm. to do that. That you deliver content and you do your best to help students learn it. 
but some students aren't going to learn it, and others are clear up here. But there's that middle group of students who are so ready to learn if we help them with some of these other things. And you, you talked about uh, academic and student affairs and in and outside the classroom. Students don't have that. A student doesn't have this part of me as my classroom part and this part of me as my student affairs part where it has to do with housing or the counseling center or the tutoring center. They're just one person and they need to be, I think we need to create, get rid of those those divides between academic and student that affairs. Artificial, because right? That artificial divide because it's all one person. And if I, I want to use this, I brought my little visual here. Okay. So I just want to tell you, should have done this at the beginning maybe, but I think of bandwidth as some people call it attentional resources. So I'm talking about, I think of bandwidth as about the width of my head, which is about the width of this piece of paper. So if I, and so this isn't about how smart we are. It's about how much of our attentional resources. So you can talk about cognitive resources, our thinking, but attentional resources is probably a better name for it. Because this isn't, this has nothing to do with how smart we are. It's about how much of our attentional resources we have to devote to whatever the task we're gonna do. And we have a limited amount of that. We only have this much bandwidth. So if, I, if some of it's being used up worrying about my child who's sick, or my dad who just had a heart attack, or I'm worried about money all the time, or I have a mental illness myself, or a chronic illness. That takes up some of its bandwidth. So when a student comes into the room, if they have all these other challenges, they may have, you know, from poverty, homophobia, whatever, whatever, and they come in my classroom with this much bandwidth. I can be a brilliant teacher, and they're not gonna do very well. And so one of the things that takes up bandwidth, and what mostly I, I write about poverty, that's one of the big bandwidth stealers is poverty. But the other bandwidth stealers are things like you don't feel like you belong, or you don't feel like you're respected, or you don't feel like you're safe. And we have to, and so we're not going to probably, unfortunately in my lifetime, probably get rid of racism or get rid of mm -hmm. poverty for that matter. But what can I do in my classroom to help the student? They're not gonna gain it all back, but help the student gain as much as possible back while they're with me in my classroom or in my, or in my housing session or in my counseling center session or at the rec, wherever. Create environments where they can enjoy the maximum of their attentional resources so they can learn. You're talking about um, underminers, right? Yep. And, and social environments, and so to re to remove those underminers and create environments that that are socially constructed. Mm -hmm. That you, as mm -hmm. the instructor, as the um, person who's facilitating the learning, um, to have the person not worry about that. Right. Then, then what do we have to do as um, as faculty members, as professors, or as people in, um, in student affairs to remove those underminers? Well, let me talk, is it okay if I talk sure. about just, I'll, oh, I'll course, mention one and then how, uh, there's something called stereotype threat. Yes. And that is the, the phenomenon that happens if you are a member of a group about whom there are, neg there's, there are negative stereotypes and you're in a performance situation that matters to you and that has some consequences and you go into that environment so let's just an easy example and this is where it started is that black students that there's a negative stereotype that black students aren't as smart as white students this the original research was done in the mid 90s at stanford i suggest that stereotype still exists in this country so you go into that exam whatever it is especially at a school where there aren't many of you, which I'll talk about in a minute. So you go in there and part of your bandwidth is being used up because you're thinking, I'm gonna blow this exam. And then people are gonna say, see, we were right all along. Black students aren't as smart as white students. And this has been, been many experiments over many years. There's a book by Claude Steele called Whistling Vivaldi, which I would highly recommend. And this has been tested in many groups. And 
the phenomenon is that their scores do go down because they're spending some of their cognitive resources on worrying about that. This has been shown with girls and women in math and science, just many kinds of places. Well, he taught, Claude Steele in, in this book, Whistling Vivaldi, talks about uh, identity threat environments and identity safe environments. In an identity threat environment, can be, that can come from lots of places, but being the only of whatever you are in a classroom can be an identity threat environment. If you go around your school and the pictures on the wall are all of people who don't look like you, that can be an identity threat environment. If you go to the big convocation or the big meetings at your school and all the people on the stage are people who don't look like you, there's lots of messages hey, come to our school, you're welcome, but really the only people who are very important are white people, for instance. That can be an identity threat environment. And identity threat takes away cognitive resources. And it has been shown there are ways to spark stereotype threat. So here's one, and this has been experimented on. So you walk into a room to take an exam, and I have you fill out a form that says your name, your gender, your race, ethnicity, before you go in. So I'm spark. I'm reminding you, you're a black uh, female right. going into a math exam right mm -hmm. there. Or I just heard somebody say, on the, on a writing test, they had to check English is my first language, yes or no, which just sparks that and makes it worse. Versus coming into a room, let's say if you are, uh, if black and brown people are not, are the min a small numerical minority, so you're kind of already a little nervous. What if you come into a testing environment where there are pictures of people, black and brown people from history, positive examples, and you don't have to fill out that stuff that reminds you right there. That could help create an identity safe environment, which is why we have the kinds of things you were telling me you have in the the safe spaces mm -hmm. for students is to create identity safe environments. So those are things if we pay attention to identity safety, if we have cues that yes, you do belong here, yes, we do value all of who you are, that helps to recover. So things we can do to help people belong. Another thing, uh, I have a colleague at Malcolm X who's in, teaches students who are gonna teach small children, so early childhood development. She does every day, and remember, we're on the west side of Chicago. Many of our students are, do not come from lots of money. Most of them are black or brown. So by definition in this culture, mm -hmm. they're coming in with some bandwidth challenges. She does every day at the beginning of class, does what she calls a check-in. And she, so the students are just checking in. How are you doing? Her rule is you have to say one sentence and you can't say more than three sentences. So everybody has, because sometimes the quieter students might not say anything. Right, she right. wants everyone to say something. So mostly it's good, th good or bad things, like I'm worried about my dog, or you know, I had a great weekend, or those kind of things. And once in a while it's, my brother was shot over the weekend, you know, these, and then they spend more time. But the, her idea is, and the way, I under, the way I understand it in a bandwidth perspective is, those things aren't going away, those negative things, but you say them out loud, you get some support from your classmates and your teacher, and my, the way I picture it is you kind of set them aside. So you've said it, I'm, I'm really worried about my daughter who's struggling in school. And then you chat a little, you get some mm -hmm. support, and you can just set that aside, and you can have more of your bandwidth to use to learn what you need to learn that day. And then at the end of the class, you gotta pick that up, back up, because we haven't gotten rid of that worry. Right. But you can go back out. So just if faculty, and I'm not suggesting everyone do that, although if we acknowledge that people have lives, have bandwidth issues, and just kind of set that out there, I think that it would free up some bandwidth during that 50 minutes or hour and a half or whatever when students are in class to focus on that, knowing it's 
you've just kind of verbalized and gotten set it aside. That's just a couple of little things to uh, ideas about what we can actually do. That can be that can be practiced that, at that moment. Right. 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 So thank you, because you know I, what struck me earlier was when you said you know if we even looked at the the, the whole non disciplinary academic thing that we were for the first half of the semester that we knew that we had to touch and address so at the end of the semester you had all these things not only introduced you were exposed but that you even mastered you understood and mm -hmm. mastered them mm -hmm. at, in, in that um, test uh, classroom experience that the students did perform and they did master mm -hmm. I, I thought really mm -hmm. devoting six weeks into that aspect of the non, whatever the academic subject matter was, mm -hmm. that the mm -hmm. students still picked up and picked up at a greater pace, but and, and learned. I mean, I yeah, thought because that was, all the uh, a person I I heard a person speak several years ago who taught eight week sections in a Cal, at California. I think it was a community college, although I can't remember. Eight week sections of writing, like let's say English Comp One. Mm -hmm. And he spent the two weeks, so a quarter of the time, he spent two weeks without any of the discipline, the writing things, just on these other things. And then the six weeks on the writing, and his students did better than other students. So the, the thing is, if you don't, it, it gets uh, back to this idea of multitasking, that we think people can think about one thing and do another thing, or do think about, but we know now that that doesn't exist. People, we think we can, but we don't do it. So the thing is, if you are not feeling like you belong, if you're not, if you're worried, if you're worried about money, all those things, that part of your brain is not available in the room. Or if you don't have hope, it that takes up bandwidth. So it makes sense to try to deal with some of those things and get on, and then get on to the writing, mm -hmm. and students can actually be learning the writing. So is this what you were? addressing as being the academic and those social counter spaces the that intentional counter space is that what that the is? counter spaces is, is what you and I just talked about uh -huh. at the beginning of our conversation are these the LGBTQ Center the black okay. student union okay. the wherever so counter spaces are uh, Sorlanzano and colleagues called these things counter spaces okay. I didn't come up with that term there are places where back in the, I don't know when they used to say, let your hair down. Like you, a place where you can come and just relax. You can be your whole self. You don't have to explain anything. You know you're safe. There's a book called, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the mm -hmm. Cafeteria? I don't know if you know that book. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She wrote it first in 1997 and just did a new one in 2017, a revised one. I would highly recommend it. So the, the title comes from uh, like right after the civil rights movement. So say in the late 70s, 80s, when we're saying, okay, we had the civil rights movement, it's now against the law to discriminate, etc. And peace, love, harmony, everybody's together, and you walk into any high school or college cafeteria and you can look and you can see here's the black student section and the Hispanic students and the and we're saying what is what's the deal aren't we over this why aren't we all sitting together and she's saying that and she didn't call it counter spaces but I'm now using that mm -hmm. word that you might go and sit with people who look like you not because you're going to be best friends because you're both black of course we know that's not true but you can go sit there and there's just something when you're sitting with your people that lets you relax and in my terms then regain bandwidth. So I think of when, when I was at the University of Central Oklahoma where I was just until January, I used to go work out at the rec after work and probably 85 to 90 percent of the students there were black students playing basketball or lifting weights. And I just recognized that was a counter space for them. So they, they're in Oklahoma we, actually, at University of Central Oklahoma, we had uh, close to 50% of the students were non-white. So it was a very, lots of racial ethnic diversity. So it wasn't that little only kind of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But we live in the United States, and 
so these students have most of them probably worked during the day at a job and gone to class and done some studying and experienced whatever one experiences as a black student in, in the United States, the black person. And by five or six o'clock in the evening, their, what in, in my term, their bandwidth is probably shot. So we could say they should go and study for three hours. And some people might look in the rec and say, what are these guys doing? They're wasting their time playing basketball or lifting weights, they should be mm -hmm. studying. But my thing is these guys are really smart because if your bandwidth is gone, it's gone. And you need a place to recoup your bandwidth. And I think the rec for them is a safe space. They're comfortable there. And in addition, they're doing a good thing, which is exercising and getting good endorphins going. But I think that's a safe space for them. It wouldn't have to be that. It could be go to your room and play video games for an hour. Go drive into the city and get a home-cooked meal from your mom, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when your bandwidth is gone, you need a place to recoup. And it's a, another thing I think about is if you are part of a faith community that, in my opinion, one definition of a, of a good faith community, which would be when you walk into the door, there's something that you could kind of take a breath. You're, you know you're safe there, you know your children are safe there, or your people you love are safe there. There's a set of beliefs and assumptions you don't have to explain, it's just accepted, and you can hopefully gain back some bandwidth. So you, we mentioned that term safe space. We know that for learning, we, well, there's a, there's a difference between comfortable and safe. Mm -hmm. So we have to make many times students uncomfortable to learn, right? Because you have to push them into that thing. But to feel safe to me brings, means I can bring all my identities into the room. I don't have to be hiding who I am because that take, hiding takes up serious bandwidth <laughs> if you can't be your whole self, if you have to hide the fact that you're gay or you have to hide the fact that you have a mental illness challenge, or you've yet to hide the fact that you have a learning disability. All those things, it, hiding anything takes up tremendous uh, cognitive resources. So safe to me means being able to bring your whole self into the room. So you can free up as much of mm -hmm. your brain power, mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. intelligence, your whatever, to learn. So that's what the counter spaces are about. Okay. Places where people can be with their people and right. feel safe. And so going towards the, the interventions that can be used and be put in place that we know that work, you're talking about the perspective of growth mindset. And, mm -hmm. you need, and I wrote this down that you said students need empathy, they yep. need that flexibility, mm -hmm. but they also need high expectations, right? I mean, that you expect them to be successful, yes. but then you're also gonna offer them the help the support yes. that they need, and that it be obvious to them, because it's like, well, it's all good, but if it's never really pointed out, or yes. if people don't, aren't listening because of these other bandwidth um, orientations and focuses that, that yep. they have, and they're yep. not, it's not, you know, registering, um, and that it be, and that it be not only. Um, openly offered but it and it be obvious I, I think for me it was like yes I mean yes they people need this downtime to then regain mm -hmm. and to to mm -hmm. replenish that yep. that energy that they need because we know you can do it right. you're, you're not going to be admitted if we know if we didn't think that you could do this and I think that's the thing that oftentimes you know maybe it's at the sophomore level the second year or you know at whatever stage in you know your academic studies that you forget, you know, you forget that you weren't admitted because, you know, they needed X number right. person right. who they, right. who you think you are, but they admitted you because they knew that you could do it. Yes. Yeah, you had to work hard. Right, right. <laughs> but we're going to help you to mm -hmm. be successful. Mm -hmm. And students sometimes forget that other part, mm -hmm. that we do have high expectations and we're going to help you meet them. Yeah, that's what one of the things I... I write about is a high hope syllabus, which I yes. got that, that terminology from uh, colleagues at Chafee College, which is in California. And a high hope syllabus is high standards, so just what you were saying, so 
we expect a lot. High expectations, high standard, and high support. This is another, there's a term called scaffolding, mm -hmm. which also comes out of early childhood education. So you, you don't just assume everyone knows how to do, comes into your class knowing how to do the same things. You scaffold, which means you do steps. And we know that for many students and people, that a goal that's up here can be just very intimidating and you just can't even see how you can get there, like graduating from college. But if you break that goal up into pieces, that increases significantly the chance somebody's gonna get up here. And it's the same thing in classes. So if you have, you could put on your syllabus, there's a 10 page paper due on December 10th that's with this kind of citation method and these kind of references and this, and you can write a paragraph in your syllabus and then you can say, okay, go for it. Or you can have on September 10th, students can turn in a proposal about that paper. Here's what I want to write about. And you can give them feedback. And on October 10th, they can have an outline and a set of six or eight references. So you can tell them, oh, these are legitimate or no, you mm -hmm. need to look for this. And then on November 10th, you could have a first draft of the paper and you could give them feedback. And better yet, have peer feedback. So have students read each other's papers. And then on December 10th, you have that goal, that, that last thing. And what is nice about this, like many of these interventions, that kind of scaffolding does no harm to the student who comes in already knowing how to write a 10-page well, research paper. And in fact, what I've been thinking about recently is, I was that kind of student when I arrived at college because I went to a decent high school in a little town and we had no frills, but we learned to read, write, and do math. Mm -hmm. And so we came to school, and of course coming to school as a white person, I had most of my bandwidth when I was in school. So I could write that paper up here, but what a teacher could say to me if she knew that is when I turn in my proposal, she could say to me, yeah, Sia, I know that that proposal will get you an A. But really, you could do more than that because you already know how to do this. Mm -hmm. So why don't you push a little bit more and take on a little bit more complex topic, for instance, which would be good for me, too. So this isn't just about how do we help these students who are struggling. It's about how do you support each student where they are, because some students will come in never having written a paper like this. Why would we expect that they would know how to do it? Mm -hmm. So you can help, so that's what's called giving lift to people who, so, get, so who gets the lift from that as far as grades? Because I'm gonna get an A anyway, probably. Because I was a good student, I came prepared, not because I'm better than anybody else, but I already knew how to do that. But it gives lift to people who might otherwise have gotten a C because they didn't really know how to do it. And that's what equity is about. It gives help to the people who really need it, and it doesn't hurt me. And this methodology could also help me to do better, but it doesn't mm -hmm. hurt a student like me. I'm gonna be okay anyway, because I came in with these different skills and abilities and with probably more of my bandwidth intact than some of my fellow students who are struggling with lots of other things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that issue of keeping standards high, so this is not about lowering standards. It's about keeping them where they are, but providing the support, like you mentioned, to help students there. And, in, and making sure they know that, which is another thing you mentioned. That I might, as a faculty person, I know I will support them, but how will they know? Because they might have been in other educational environments, not even here, where they didn't get that support. Mm -hmm. So we need to be really upfront that here's what I'm going to contribute. We're in this together. I'm committed to everyone in this class learning this material. Right. We're in this together. You know, I yeah. I kind of made made me think because there was a, about you know the idea of the the marginal man, the cultural hybridity, mm. and. I speak Spanish. That was my first language. Um, even though I was born, I go even though. <laughs> even though I was born in California, <laughs> raised in Minnesota, uh, my first language in my home was Spanish. And so when I went to school, I did not speak English. And um, and and I was 
ashamed of you know not knowing English, mm -hmm. and then that I knew how to speak two languages when only everybody else was only speaking one. But at a certain point, I began to realize that individuals who are bilingual, bicultural, or multilingual actually have many more doors that get open to them. And yes. so that when we have you know faculty who say, you know, we're in this together, I'm going to make sure, I mean, I'm invested in you just as much as I'm asking you to be invested in learning this, mm -hmm. this subject mm -hmm. matter because you need it to graduate. You need it to help you to be ready for when you leave this mm -hmm. time period mm -hmm. of, of practicing, of gathering that toolkit. Yep. And, and it, you know, it's that the high stakes of, you, you know, when you're only 18 to 24 or, you know, at a certain time in your life when you're thinking, well, when I'm done with this and real life happens, knowing that this is all those experiences that you want to have. You want to have as mm -hmm. most very diverse, multi-experiences as possible to then to be ready to not just accomplish a task, but to be at the table, mm -hmm. to make those decisions, to be another voice for mm -hmm. solving a problem mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. pretty probably going to be global mm -hmm. or, yep. you know, not just for this one particular, you know, situation that you have at hand. Mm -hmm. So maybe to, to, as we get ready to wrap up our, our time, I have a couple of questions that were, were given to me that you know, I'm thinking that others, you know, were thinking about when they read the, the text. And um, so I'm, there's five of them, and I'm, I might just go one or two and and see how 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 you feel about them. So the first one says, so presently, what do you see as the greatest challenge to the accomplishment of the overarching mission of higher education? And what do you project to be the greatest challenges in the future? Well, I think the <coughs> The greatest challenge is one of equity because higher ed costs too much money for many, many students. Although it's not all about money because we, many states, for instance, now have a, if you accomplish XYZ in high school, if you graduate from a high school in Oklahoma, you can go to any community college in Oklahoma for no, co no tuition. And people don't always, Lots of people don't do it. So it's n some of it's not about money. I think the, the biggest challenges, money is one of them, that higher ed should be more affordable for the average person mm -hmm. so that students don't have to go deeply in debt. Because going deeply in debt, I think, is affecting, well, I know it is, <laughs> I don't think, it's affecting us after, so many students are affected after graduation that mm -hmm. they're in jobs, they, because they have to have a job that pays X number of dollars so they can pay that loan back. There's just many traps from loans afterwards. But I think the, that racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, all those isms are hugely affecting higher ed. Because higher ed in general, our institutions reflect the society. So we'd like to think, and we, we try, to be oases of mm. equity. You know, we, we try, I think we, many of us are trying very hard to have institutions that do not, that are not racist and are not sexist and are not these things. But the reality is that most of, we're humans, we have, we reflect the society. I think those things are just huge. You can, you can look at, I, I can't spit out all the statistics right here, but the statistics are very clear that economically secure white students consistently do better than students in other groups. We've, in, we've increased in the numbers of black and brown students who get to college, but the, the completion rates are still just terrible in comparison to white students. Those kind of equity issues are huge because it's affecting who then is making decisions in our, our society? Who's there to solve problems? We have huge problems to be solved in this or on mm -hmm. Earth, mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. climate change to, well, all these equity issues, to hunger, to homelessness, all these things. They need all of our minds to be concentrating, but we are not 
many students are not ever getting to college and then not completing. So I think higher ed has the same um, challenges as we do as a society, but we have just got to be places that embrace everyone. And you mentioned the word potential earlier. We have to have places where students can come and reach their whole potential and not be drugged down by some of these bandwidth stealers mm -hmm. so that we can all succeed. And I think so many parts of higher ed, are, we're, we're trying, but I think those are the challenges now and in the future. You know, you're talking about being an oasis or oases of equity and others see it, see higher ed as ivory towers. Mm -hmm. You know, the haves and the have-nots have the opportunity to and those who didn't have the opportunity. And we're in a time right now where we see individuals who um, did not have that opportunity, mm -hmm. who chose not to have that opportunity, um, and who, you know, are, you know, helping to shape the society that we're mm -hmm. living in. Mm -hmm. And so those of mm -hmm. us who are in a place of um, awareness, enlightenment, and truth, you mm -hmm. know, lux at veritas, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, to say, well, wait a minute, we want to have us all grow. It, it, why is it that that you would at the very beginning you said this is not about um, put framing it in a way that it's um, the deficit model where right. there's right. a, a exactly. certain limitation a certain amount and then you either have it or you don't or you're right. not going to have it but that we all can raise and we can all benefit from mm -hmm. this and so mm -hmm. that you know that was while you were talking that was mm -hmm. what was coming to my mind you mm -hmm. know hmm, oases of of equity yeah you know yeah. So um, then, if that's what we are, in what ways then might teaching, right? Because that's what we're here to talk about. How do we then help to shape that so we can uh, reach and attain it? How might teaching, in, in what ways might teaching in particular become a pathway to the solutions to some of these current and future challenges? Do you take talking professors? So how yes, can we? Yeah, the, the pedagogy and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I think I mentioned it earlier mm -hmm. I think many of us have to step aside and focus on the students and engage the students a whole bunch more instead of us putting stuff inside the student you mentioned earlier about you grew up speaking Spanish at first it's interesting so, some of so some of the things I talk talk about and a lot of what I emphasize, I think, is about some paradigm shift in the way we think of what students bring into the classroom. And having a different language than English in the United States as your first language is a good example. Because we, if I came to you now and said, I speak French and English, people would say, oh, she's bilingual. Isn't she so clever? She has something I don't have. But English language learners, so immigrants or people who spoke a different language at mm -hmm. home, we call them English language learners. We, we, and that's more of a deficit thing. So you, you don't have something, you don't have English, you're learning that instead of saying, realizing, wow, they're bilingual. And realizing what it takes, and this is true for when we talk about code switching for black and brown students and other people who grow up in different kind of cultural environments, that those students, those people have to, so if, if English is not your first language, and this is not news to you, but if you, so students who are bilingual and English is not their first language, they have to, they hear things said to them in English, inside their mind, taking up bandwidth, they're translating into, mm -hmm. let's say Spanish, mm -hmm. understanding it in Spanish where they're comfortable, formulating an answer in Spanish, then translating that back into English to then say back to the professor or whatever in a conversation. Look at all the bandwidth that takes up that I don't have to use because English is my thing. You know, that's what mm -hmm. I hear in mm -hmm. English. And mostly, like you said, we, if we frame that as a deficit, oh, they don't speak English very well. But if we frame it as, oh my gosh, this person knows two languages. And that's true for a student who grows up in the south side of Chicago and speaks 
standard black English. Perfectly fine language. But he has to come to school, to college especially, and he hears things in, when I'm talking, in standard English, and do the same translation. Mm -hmm. And then learn to speak my speak. That takes up lots of bandwidth. So let's give credit where it's due there. Not that it's an excuse, not that, not that I think we do in the United States in 2019. It's our obligation to teach students to speak and write standard English because that's the language of business. And, but let's see their multilingualism and multiculturalism as a, an asset. And, a, a, and, and there's a cost to their bandwidth, but it's still an asset. And if we saw it that way and respected everyone's funds of knowledge. So when you walk into a class, when I walk into my classroom, I think, oh my gosh, every semester, I think these, I, the students can't get any better. And they just keep amazing me of what they're bringing into the room, what they already know and can do. And I value that so highly. And we, I think that will help them increase their bandwidth if I just acknowledge, you know lots when you walk into my classroom. And I respect you and I know that you have values you're bringing in here. I think that just kind of, not a huge shift. For many faculty, it's not going to be a huge shift, if at all, because many of us already think that way. Mm -hmm. But I think that could, I think that can help students free up bandwidth if they're respected. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to close just my my thoughts and I'm thank you again for coming because yeah. I really was looking forward to meeting and having this time to, to speak with you in terms of bandwidth recovery, knowing that it's not a finite or limited amount, but it can be reduced. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it can be recovered. Mm -hmm. And so it's dynamic, it's growing, and it, 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 has, um, it has potential for, for morphing, for meeting the needs of obviously the individual who is, um, is having it all happening uh, in their minds, but it's in interaction with others as well. Mm -hmm. And so when one person is learning and, and growing, hopefully the other person is going in that social and context and experiencing and encouraging that growth as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that because I just met with some, a student earlier this morning who was talking about, um, it's called the Latino Male Initiative and it's totally voluntary. Th young men come together to support each other mm -hmm. and um, and to meet in each other where they are from freshmen to graduate students to even young professionals to be there uh, to hear to listen to what is being said and not mm -hmm. said mm -hmm. to provide um, examples of what resources are available and you know, and then to to then say you know, and hopefully this is going to work. And you know, in your book, there's a lot more. There's a lot more in there. But you talk about you know, interventions. If it works, scale it out, mm -hmm. scale it up. Yep. And if it doesn't work, you know, based on evidence, then discontinue, mm -hmm. discontinue yep. these these um, ways in which we're trying to help individuals reach their potential mm -hmm. and learning. Mm -hmm. And so, in the mm -hmm. classroom and outside of mm -hmm. the classroom. And I think we we really need to be asking students mm -hmm. what are the barriers because I and we're trying to do that at Malcolm X now because we have as a highly educated economically secure straight white woman I have my ideas you know let's mm -hmm. hire some more tutors let's get some more books in the library let's do these things but I suspect that those aren't the things that that are getting in the way of our students succeeding we need to ask them. And then, like you just mentioned, if we're trying some things, let's pay attention to whether it's happening, whether it's helping. Mm -hmm. And if it's not helping, this is a growth mindset. Okay, that didn't work. What did we learn from that? Mm -hmm. And let's try something else. But I think we need to ask students, which, and that is not an easy thing because students are not necessarily do not necessarily feel safe to be honest with us, especially if you're a black or a brown or a poor student or an immigrant. You have been taught that not everyone is trustworthy, which is factual. 
historically. So to get students to be honest and feel safe enough in a space to say, here are the barriers, here is what I experience when I walk into this library or this room or this classroom, that's when we'll be able to get, I think, to be able to have some interventions, have some revisions of, of whether it's even uh, infrastructure, buildings, what, what kind of messages are students getting if we can, to the extent we can understand where, what the barriers are, then we can do better in trying to remove some of the barriers. Right. Yeah. But understanding is not easy. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you.